You've stumbled onto the sleeping giant. Let's broaden our minds. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Sleeping Giant Podcast. I'm your host, Grayson Parker Marcotte, and I'd like to say thank you for joining me once more. This episode is the last episode of 2020 and will likely be hitting the apps right around the time we shuck away this uh, awful year and slip into the slick skin of a fresh new decade. Y'all don't need me to tell you how fucked up this year has been, so let's just roll right along. In episode number 12 of 2020, we're talking the horror-esque and holiday-appropriate Scrooged from 1988. It's one of my most treasured flicks, and I've got Zach Brown on once more to talk it over with me. Also, we will be hearing from the ever-insightful Mr. Rich Lansley with some of his thoughts on the film. Thank you so much for listening to this show for one more year. Now, y'all get comfy. We are about to begin. Hey, listen! 2020 wasn't all that bad, though, right? I mean, it may have been a despicable year for human health and for politics, but let's be real, if it weren't for the entertainment that we received this year, I just don't think that any of us would have made it, frankly. And and of course, by entertainment, I mean The Mandalorian, right? Yeah. So, The Mandalorian, my gods, what a program. There aren't enough good things for me to say about The Mandalorian, both seasons one and two. And in the uh, shit-fixing department, if you have not seen The Mandalorian, then that is definitely some shit that you need to fix. Uh, whether that's not having seen season one or two, just watch them both sit down, make a day of it. My gods, it's fantastic. And uh, it, it really is, for me personally, a return to everything that I love truly and deeply about Star Wars. Now, don't want to get into a whole lot of debate I don't want to get into a whole lot of finger-pointing and this, that, and the other because, frankly, I'm so tired of that shit. But I would like to offer uh, an opinion, and that is I feel that The Mandalorian is a return to the roots of Star Wars. It's a return to that that, uh, that desperado feel, that space western that Star Wars is always touted as being, and it, man, it's just so good. It, it, it strips away all the fluff and baggage that has either been added to Star Wars or grown onto Star Wars over the years. And, uh, and I, I have to say, one of the things that I think makes The Mandalorian so good to me could possibly be uh, the thing that people were so aggravated about when it came to the sequel trilogy. Now, again, I'm not minimizing the fandom of the sequel uh, trilogy. I'm not pointing fingers. I'm not criticizing 
uh, I'm only observing that I feel like a lot of the angst and a lot of the hurt that came from the sequel trilogy was likely misconstrued and poorly communicated um, by a lot of people in a lot of different ways. I think that that what we wanted, um, I, and I'm including myself in this, what we wanted was to see post-Return of the Jedi. We wanted to see that. We wanted to see uh, not only Luke's progress as a Jedi and how he you know, becomes the person that will eventually be the person in the last Jedi. Uh, you know, we wanted to see what it was like to clean up the aftermath of the Empire and how the rebellion, after their miraculous victory, became the New Republic. And you know, I'm I'm interested in the politics of that. I'm interested in how a rebellion becomes a government. Um, you know, that's that's some some really interesting stuff. But of course. You know, everyone complained about Luke Skywalker, not my Luke, hashtag, what, this, that, the fuck, I don't know. Um, all I know is that I think that maybe that is what people wanted to see. They wanted to see those tales and those stories brought to life. And uh, I don't think that Ryan Johnson uh, made a bad film, frankly. I don't. Um, there were a lot of mixed feelings on my part when it came to Luke and... Uh, and what Johnson decided to do with that character. Um, and ultimately, after years had passed, I, I resolved, uh, you know, critically to, to hail it as a good film. Um, I just don't think that it's what people wanted to see, considering all of those stories and tales had not yet been portrayed on screen in some form or fashion, and what I guess would be considered canon. So, you know, we've all hopefully got functional, uh, you know, nigh infinite imaginations. And of course, we're able to fill in all of those gaps for ourselves, especially when it comes to comics. And, and uh, you know, I mean, there's the Legends material, of course, but um, we also have the uh, the new books, you know, like the, the Disney era Star Wars, which... Uh, honestly speaking, has been pretty fucking good um, as far as the comics and, and what have you are concerned. I I just caught up to Battlefront 2, the cutscenes and the storylines in that. And, uh, and of course, The Mandalorian delves into that lore uh, regarding Operation Cinder and, and what that is and how uh, the Empire is, is, is behaving and what their plan is to rebound from the victory uh, of the Rebels and the destruction of the Death Star too, and it's just the the world building in the Mandalorian is unparalleled thus far, and you could really see uh, you can really see the John Favreau of it all. I mean, this is the guy that kicked off the MCU for us, and you know whether you're into that or whether you're not into that, I, I think that we can all find something to admire in the vision of the MCU um, and how that they had this this central thread this central idea uh, the way that that was managed and executed with minimal uh plot holing or or being derailed and it was all very consistent and every story interacted with the other stories around it and it was just uh it was pretty cool um so you know what like i said whether you're a fan of that or not that's more or less irrelevant. You know, we're, we're looking at the here and the now and what's happening with 
with the Mandalorian. And I gotta, I just gotta give it to Dave Filoni. I gotta give it to John Favreau. I gotta give it to uh, Bryce Dallas Howard. I gotta give it to all of these guest directors that uh, that contributed to seasons one and two of of the Mandalorian. Such tremendous talent, tremendous talent in crafting this show and bringing it to life. Oh, man, it's so good. It's so good. And then, <laughs> and then, we have everything that is slated for uh, 2021, 2, and 3 in in and around Disney Plus from Marvel Studios or Lucasfilm. I mean, we've got the Patty Jenkins film. We've got Taika Waititi's film. Uh, we have... Uh, Ahsoka, Rosario Dawson reprising her role as that character in her own series. Uh, so many that I can't even remember what they all are. And then, of course, in the Marvel-shaped side of things, we've got uh, Loki, we've got Falcon and the Winter Soldier, uh, WandaVision, which will, should be uh, premiering in just a couple of weeks from now. So many cool things. Uh, Ironheart, the What If series. Uh, which, if I'm understanding correctly, will be uh, will be animated. That just sounds so cool. It sounds so cool. And of course, I'm looking forward most to Spider-Man Three and uh, the next Doctor Strange picture, which I believe will sort of uh, run into one another and also uh, tickle uh, Wandavision. So we'll see. <laughs> we'll see what kind of laughs we get out of that one and how those stories play out. I think it's going to be. Uh, very fascinating for those of us that, that enjoy the MCU content. I think it's going to be really fun. And uh, hey, you know, out of all of this shit that's coming out, I'm sure it's not all going to be great. But you know what? I bet that all of us will find something, probably more than one thing that we like out of all of it. And, you know, that's those aren't bad odds, in my opinion. I think those are pretty good odds. And I am for it. I'm here for it. God damn, I am here for it. So, uh, it's it's just going to be great. A veritable host of new content coming out for us. And it's a really good time to be a fan. 2020 sucks, uh, but it was still a great time to be a fan. And I think the best times to be uh, fans, I think that that's coming. That's just around the corner. So, uh, I, I'm interested, though. I want to know what y'all are most excited about. What... What show, what film, uh, what what is it that you are super stoked about? So sound off on the Facebook page for me, uh, which you can, of course, find on Facebook.com slash The Sleeping Giant Podcast. Uh, I'm pretty active on Instagram, so if you want to check out the podcast there, you may. And that is, of course, at The Sleeping Giant Podcast. And, you know, you can also find me on that there Twitter machine, because uh, sometimes I, I get a wild hair up the old, uh, you know, and uh, and I go crazy on Twitter. So uh, you can find the Sleeping Giant podcast on Twitter at TSG underscore pod. Now, don't forget to follow and subscribe to the show on uh, your podcast app of choice. And, and if you can, rate and review the show, especially on Apple Podcasts. It's such a big help to me, and it doesn't cost you anything at all. Um, if you do, though, if you feel compelled by forces both divine and arcane to further support the show. You can find me on Patreon at patreon.com slash the sleeping giant podcast. Just $1 a month gets you access to all the Patreon content as well as a personalized thank you from me 
as well as a shout out slash plug of your choice on the next show. So, you know, check it out. All right, y'all, time to bring on the good times with some talk about 1988 Scrooged. Written by Mitch Glazer and Michael O'Donohue, this film was directed by Richard Donner and stars Bill Murray, Alfred Woodard, Karen Allen, and my personal favorite, Bobcat Goldthwait. Uh, more or less a, uh, a retelling uh, or, or more or less based on the classic Christmas novella from Charles Dickens, this flick is it's a modern and somewhat meta version of A Christmas Carol. Um, this movie is is outstanding in just about every way to this guy, and it's been a long-standing favorite of mine and uh, a favorite of my family's for almost as long as I've been a living human being. Um, so yeah, I've, I've got the amazingly talented Zach Brown back on the show with me, and we're going to talk about Scrooge, but first, before we get into that conversation, I want to... Uh, play a voicemail that I got from Mr. Rich Lansley, very insightful fellow. You guys might remember that he contributed a voicemail to the Beetlejuice episode, and uh, he was a guest along with Mr. John Galantini from Blah Wars on my Alien 3 episode. And the three of us had a great time. Uh, Rich is he's very well-versed in film, big fan of cinema, and uh, he's, he's just a cool cat, man. I'm glad that he takes time every here and there to, uh, to input his opinions into the show. I'm very glad to have him on. So let's listen to this voicemail uh, that Rich sent us first. It's like a mini review of the show peppered with, with his take on the film and his attitudes towards it. So we're going to listen to that. I think you guys will enjoy it. And then we'll get into the conversation with, uh, with Zach Brown. So uh, let's, uh, let's do it. So, it's that time of year again. The time when we dust off all the old Christmas movies. The good, the bad, the all-time classics, and the cheesy feel-goods. But for me, one of my all-time favourite Christmas movies has to be the 1988 masterpiece that is Scrooged. This is a movie that I grew up with, and one of the first films that introduced me to Mr Bill Murray. Look, Everyone knows the basics of A Christmas Carol, so a modern age reimagining of this classic story has sort of a timeless feel to it, and it's got one hell of a cast, with the most memorable Scrooge himself, Frank Cross, played by the legendary Bill Murray. The film was actually a resurgence for Murray, who had taken an imposed four-year exile from Hollywood, and what a joyous return it was. Murray had originally been approached about the film two years earlier, but at that point he wasn't quite ready to jump back into the movie-making fold. Murray was an A-list star by the time Scrooge hit theatres, and up until that point he'd always been part of the ensemble cast of Caddyshack, Stripes, Ghostbusters. This was his first opportunity to shine solo on screen, and he definitely did that. The script is knee-slapping funny. David Johansson, the ghost of Christmas past, as a nutty New York cab driver, is just wonderful and has me laughing at every line. And Carol Kane, the ghost of Christmas present, plays an adorable yet volatile version of what Glenda the Good Witch on speed would be like. Of course, like the film, I have to end this review 
on a high note. And what better way than to mention Frank's monologue at the end of the movie. Director Richard Donner said during shooting of the final scene of the movie, and I quote, on the last take, I saw something happen to Billy. I saw Billy Murray become an actor. Never a truer line spoken. Apparently, this scene was mostly ad-libbed by Murray, as were many of his lines in the movie. And this brought out a tremendous performance by the actor. This is a movie that gets played every Christmas in our house. It has the perfect balance of comedy, dark humour and Christmas good cheer. Scrooged is a reimagining of a wonderful story of life, love and death, tackling some pretty heavy issues, but giving even heavier laughs along the way. This film will always have a very special place in my heart. Zach, are you there, sir? Hey, Grayson. How are you doing? I'm doing quite all right. It's uh, just a chilly, rainy evening down here in not-so-sunny Florida, and uh, I am, I'm actually doing pretty good. Thank you. What's been going on? You know, that, uh, that description sounds pretty close to what it's like here, too. It's not quite snowy or anything, but it's just kind of cold and wet so i'm doing pretty good um i don't know if we talked about this last time but i'm a teacher so we recently went back to doing uh, all remote so uh, this week's been kind of quiet and uh you know it's been it's been fine i've been getting caught up on some work but uh i'm i think i'm just looking forward to some time when nobody's uh, expecting anything from me yeah i think i think that's something that we all sort of strive for yes it happens rare and uh, or it, it rarely happens, though, in adulthood, I should say. Um, so I saw that you had recently posted a new T-shirt design. What's what's going on with that, man? What's that? The uh, Catwoman design? Yeah. Oh, yeah. So that's just I think it just kind of came from a conversation that I had with uh, Monster Tees just because mm-hmm. I've worked with them so much. And I'm in the process of doing a digital design for them for um, the film Aliens. And my, I got a brand new MacBook Air and everything's been going great. And all of a sudden I've been having a lot of issues with Adobe. Uh, So I've been, you know, on the phone with him a lot recently. So I felt like I had been so slowed down with that project. I had started on it maybe in October, later October. So I was just like, wow, I'm taking too long on this. So they also had talked to me about doing a Michelle Pfeiffer Catwoman design eventually. And I did the um, Joaquin Phoenix Joker for them, and that did really well, and we both liked it a lot. And I was like, well, why don't I just do something like that for Catwoman, something uh, simple? So it's kind of funny. Uh, I love you know, both Keaton Batman movies, and I've done a couple 89 designs. But I was like, wow, I've never actually done anything for Batman Returns, and I don't think Catwoman uh, gets enough love herself. So, yeah, that's that was just a, a neat idea I had, and something quick I, I could throw together. I, I've really enjoyed doing those little head designs. Um, I love doing portraits anyway, so I kind of want to eventually do, like, not just Batman characters, but more little, like, just symmetrical, straight-on faces like that, little icons. I, I think it looks great, and that's the... I mean, I as you know, I love your style anyway, and uh, the way that you've portrayed Michelle Pfeiffer, I think, does her complete justice, because that, to me, is, like, the perfect... Um, I don't want to say representation of her, but that moment in the film where everything is just gone, if you'll pardon the pun, batshit. And, <laughs> uh, <laughs> you know, it's like right there at the climax of the film. And 
and she's just a mess. I think that uh, that's one of the best on-screen portrayals of of Catwoman. And I'm sure there are fans somewhere that are probably like clawing their eyes out right now in disagreement. But hey, that's okay. okay they're wrong. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> no, it, it looks fantastic though. Uh, and before we go any further though, I do kind of like to front end the uh, the plugs. So where can people find you on social media if they want to check some of that stuff out? Yeah, so I'm actually updating my website right now, but um, my Instagram and I just started a TikTok. So I'm getting with the, the fresh kids right yeah. now um, is Zachary Jackson Brown art for both of them. So that's the same name on Instagram as it is on TikTok. Awesome. Yeah. If you have not followed him already, you definitely need to do so because uh, you're missing out on some really cool posts. And again, that uh, that work is just, just beautiful. Love it. <laughs> Thank you. Absolutely. Um, so you were on the show uh, for our October episode where we did Creep Show, as I think you mentioned just a moment ago. And uh, I kind of dropped the ball a little bit in October and then November. And, and I had been saying that I was going to do the rest of the month. Um, the rest, excuse me, the rest of the year would be horror. And I kind of stumbled on that a bit. And then I thought maybe I could try to redeem myself by just going straight horror all the way. And my friend Simon uh, suggested Hellraiser, which is a, a great movie. It's one of my absolute favorites, if not in my top three favorites um but i think scrooged which you suggested is sort of you know it, it uh it holds the spirit of christmas which it is mm -hmm. and i wouldn't think of scrooge as a horror movie right off but i think that ultimately the things that happen inside uh the dickens novella and subsequent adaptations and then and then this film are I'd say it, uh, it it holds quite a few elements of horror, so I think that it's a winner for Christmas. <laughs> yeah, I, sometimes I think horror is done best when it is not in a horror film, when it, there are elements of horror, especially in like like this kind of like comedies or uh, children's horror and um, or children's movies where there's horrific elements in it, mm -hmm. and for Scrooge. Uh, I don't know. There's something about it that I just uh, I've always loved, and um, and I always liked uh, a Christmas Carol in general because I like Christmas stories that deal with those kind of darker elements of Christmas. Um, you know, where there to me, when you think of Christmas, you know, secularly it's like Santa and you know Christmas trees, things like that. But I think looking back at the darker origins, I kind of like it when there are you know those Christmas. Uh, tales that involve ghosts and and you know i don't know there's different kinds of horror elements or darker elements absolutely yeah i'm i'm totally on board with that uh it, it a lot of those things as, as you mentioned it kind of have this uh this this feel or um this image that we kind of have all sort of embraced culturally on on the surface but yeah if you dig into just about any of that you're going to find uh, maybe not darker things so much as uh, maybe something a little bit more outlandish that that starts to deviate away, <laughs> starts to deviate from uh, these cultural ideas that we all kind of hold either deeply or in a, a general sense just from having grown up um, 
in and, and around those situations. So I'm, I'm definitely on board with that. And I am so glad that you said you sometimes think that, um, or you think that sometimes horror is at its best when uh, it's not a straight on horror film or, or it's a, it's something that has horror as an element. I think that's my favorite thing too. And I was going to ask you, what what your favorite horror genre is if because it's broken up into so many that might not might not be a, a viable question in itself but i was thinking about this before we started recording and i was thinking that i love horror movies the most when there is a a depth of story and uh, there's substance there that's just sort of um garnished with with horror or uh or something uh unsettling and and disturbing i think so that's my favorite which unfortunately kind of limits the scope of of uh of what my favorite horror movies tend to be but what would you say is is your favorite uh horror genre or category if i had to go for the types of horror movies that i will sit and watch over and over again I think it usually comes down to either it would be three things. It's it would be like slashers, kind of like '80s uh, classic horror slashers, uh, fantasy-based horror movies, and um, probably anthologies. Because like we talked about with Creepshow, I, I like kind of bite-sized little stories. And my favorite horror movie uh, is A Nightmare on Elm Street. So I really like that entire genre or that series of movies, and I kind of like just the 80s slashers in general. You know, it is a lot, to me, it's kind of like just popcorn movies. There's not a lot of Mm -hmm. substance there. Um, So I can appreciate those movies that are deeper, but I feel like for my entertainment value, the kind of things that I want to watch over again, over and over again, is sometimes I feel like they, they fall a little bit more into the style over substance category. Mm-hmm. Just because I'm maybe just because I'm such a visual person that I just I don't know these kind of stylized characters or I iconic characters just stick into my brain so much more. Um, and Freddie to me is is something that I, has just been a part of me since I was a kid. It's you know I started watching those movies early on, and he's just so unique and he has a personality. And it's just like a, this character that I've always been attached to. Um, so I think those kinds of movies are the ones that I like the most. But I do have an appreciation for more cerebral horror movies, uh, you know, like Hereditary and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. And oh, yeah. especially even like The Babadook. Um, but I have to be in a certain mood to watch those movies because it's not it's not just like, a, you know, a, a popcorn flick or something that's just like a flash sure. in the pan. You just watch it for fun. It's, you know, th- those kind of movies disturb me in, a, in the best way. But, yeah, I've got to be in the right mindset that I want to watch it again. I understand. Absolutely. Um, I, it's kind of funny. I'm usually always in the right mindset. However, for me, I require a palate cleanser afterward. <laughs> I don't know if, if you ever need that like uh for example hereditary is a great example uh we absolutely have to put on you know like uh rick and morty uh, or something like that afterwards just to get some real chuckles going oh yeah my my wife if i'm watching with my wife absolutely and it's almost 
it makes me think about when I was a kid and it's like, well, you watched Are You Afraid of the Dark? Now you got to watch like Rugrats or something to like kind of take the edge off. When people, <laughs> um, yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, um, life is sometimes horrendous and depressing enough. So, you know, you watch something like that and you're, it just sort of like fortifies that. But again, having an appreciation for for those things is, is just, uh, as you said, it's kind of a part of me. So it's it's not going away anytime soon. Now, you did mention uh, horror with a fantasy element, and I'm curious as to what film comes to mind when you say that. I guess the first thing that popped in my head was probably Pan's Labyrinth, but there's been a lot of different movies like that. To me, a lot of the Elm Street movies shifted from a slasher into the fantasy world because you have that opportunity with the, the dreamscape to do things that are just kind of weird and, and out. Yeah. I'm not sure what else I would consider. Like, uh, it's hard for me to say maybe even fantasy movies that have horror as an element. Mm. Yeah. I'm not sure. I feel like some genres are kind of hard to. Follow. Yeah, definitely. The never ending story kind of comes to my mind. Yes. yes. That one. <laughs> it's, it'll get you. Yeah. I always think that the, uh, I can't remember that thing's name, but it's like that black wolf at the end that's just like yeah. sitting in that little broken wall. Like, I was like, wow, this is, to me, I remember as a kid, it frightened me. Even um, uh, the luck dragon scared me as a kid. Yeah, it's it's definitely weird. Uh, the Mork, I think, was the name of that creature. Yeah. The wolf, yeah. Yeah, that was so intense. And like the blood when he stabs it in the gut with that, that shard of rock. That was that was intense, man. That was some scary stuff. What is the um, name? Is it Bal- Falcor? Falcor, that's it. Yeah, yeah, I love that movie. I think my daughter is probably just about where she can watch that and appreciate it. So I'm gonna have to keep that one in mind. Um, okay, so Scrooged. I think we kind of got the the preliminary horror discussion out of the way, which again I feel like I owe people for <laughs> for saying that this was. Uh, going to be horror through and through, but I, I do maintain that uh, that we, in some way, form or fashion, uh, stood true to to the statement that we had finished the year with horror. Scrooged is a a modern adaptation, if you will, of the uh, the classic tale, uh, a Christmas Carol, and there have been so many adaptations and portrayals of of this story and these characters whether it be on stage on screen on the big screen uh, the one with george c scott comes to mind as being uh, impressive to me but the thing about scrooged that sets it apart i mean it's it sets itself apart in a lot of ways but it's sort of meta in that it's a a, a retelling of a christmas carol sort of within a christmas carol which is it so so it has that layer of of meta funkiness that i find Mm -hmm. really entertaining uh so this came out in 88 directed by richard donner who to be honest with you i'm not familiar with his work all that much i mean i know i've seen a million of the things that he's directed but the thing that really comes to my mind uh would be uh the omen and superman Mm-hmm. That's that's pretty much what comes to mind for me too. In fact, I just found out that Richard Donner directed this movie today. Oh, yeah, <laughs> you know, the Scrooge, you mean? 
Yeah, I don't think I had ever actually looked at who directed it, and I have the VHS box here with me, and mm-hmm. I was like, oh, look at that, it's Richard Donner. And um, it made me think about the fact that, and I, I may be mistaken, but I've watched the special features enough times that I think I'm right, that he was one of the founding directors that wanted to get the 90s Tales from the Crypt show off the ground. Oh, really? Yeah, I think it was Donner and Joe Dante and Robert Zemeckis. Those were like the big three like Hollywood directors that really wanted to get that off the ground. And it makes me think, oh, yeah, I can see some cryptish uh, elements. Absolutely. Absolutely. I'll have to look that up after this. Um, Just just to satisfy my own curiosity. That uh, makes me think, though about um all all of those guys being together i mean because danny elfman did the music for that and you know it's just all these associations uh danny elfman did the music for this as well so i really wouldn't be i wouldn't be shocked or surprised oh yeah this um i listen to the soundtrack for this movie constantly when it gets uh, near christmas and there's um i have this cd that's like a danny elfman collection mm-hmm. and it's just called the scrooge suite and I listen to that on repeat. I don't know what it is about the... It's kind of similar to his work on Batman Returns as well. It's the ethereal choir. Yes. I don't know what it is. I just... It really gets me, like, pumped. It's it's Christmas, but it just sounds, like, creepy and shrill and kind of, like... It, it is fun and uh, sinister at the same time. And I, that's what I like the most about his music. Yeah, you're absolutely right. Uh, that song, or that uh, uh, song, is not the right word. My, my words are escaping me tonight for some oh, reason. Yeah, which is <laughs> really shitty if you're if you're hosting a podcast. That's kind of a <laughs> kind of a big deal. Um, but uh, yeah, so that track, as it were, is uh, the very first thing that just jumped out at me when we started watching this, and it just brought back all of these memories from childhood and all of the associations that I have with, uh, with this film, but also Danny Elfman. And so it's, it's funny that that track, that choir that you mentioned is is sort of like the linchpin that ties together, uh, so many of my fond memories of Mm -hmm. Christmas as a child. And, uh, you know, of watching Batman and Scrooge and Beetlejuice and all of those things. So it was, this was a really emotional watch for me in a, in a strange turn of events. That's not something that I was expecting when, when I sat down to watch this. So, um, yeah, so that you get that, that, uh, bit of the score or soundtrack as the movie starts and you get a very similar kind of, uh, almost Burton-esque zoom over the, over the, uh, the little town in the North Pole, which turns out to be part of a set. Yeah. Um, so, like, right right out of the gate, right at the beginning, what the fuck is going on at the North Pole? You, you <laughs> don't know if this is the film that you're watching. You you know, I mean, of course, you find out that it's a, a, a TV film, but it uh, the way that the film starts, it very much seems like this is the movie you're watching. And... Uh, it's some sort of ninja assault on the North Pole, and then yeah. Lee Majors shows up. It's uh, it. I think it is one of the best beginnings to any movie ever because the whole, I guess, the movie and like you talk about being meta, it is almost a commentary on like the, sh- not only like how schlocky Christmas can be, but mm-hmm. how uh, I guess how um, corrupt it's become, and they're like, just, oh yeah. 
and his company in particular, this like t- television studio, just like using using Christmas, squeezing Christmas for all it's worth, and turning it into this schlock. It is just it's great because uh, you know everything seems fine, and they're all trying to get ready for Christmas. You know, it's Santa's little workshop, and he's scolding one of the elves, and then all of a sudden, uh, one of the elves sees uh, the ninja guys with like, the AK-47s yeah. creeping up through yeah. the snow, and then. Uh, one of them shoots a missile, and I just remember Mrs. Claus being like, "In the deck or incoming!" It's just, it's just <laughs> yeah. the most ridiculous thing I have ever seen. Yeah, and you know, it really brought to mind as well, uh, being as that that's the theme that really kind of uh, runs throughout this movie because our our title character, our main character, uh, Frank Cross, who's our Ebenezer Scrooge. He's a he's a he's a president of a television station or or they're a network actually aren't they right that's right um, ICB or or something like that mm-hmm. um, so yeah so Lee Major shows up with a minigun <laughs> and uh, inc- incidentally this is the minigun it's the same prop that was used in Predator by uh, Jesse Ventura really yeah, yeah it's the same that. prop so it's just like <laughs> I love these weird connections in movies and it really kind of calls back to how uh you know just how phony everything is when mm-hmm. you know so many costumes and props and things like that are are uh, you know passed around and used in and in, in all of these different productions so i thought that was kind of cool but uh it really reminded me of uh, tim allen and the santa claus yes. where he's talking about you know at the board meeting where he's talking yes. about uh <laughs> i hope you've been good this year kids because Santa's coming down the street in a panzer. Yes, exactly. <laughs> yeah, so it's just these wacky ideas, and I don't know how much cocaine is involved uh, <laughs> when these these uh, these guys are pitching these ideas back and forth to one another. And the the thing that astounds me though is that it gets made. You know, <laughs> like <laughs> yeah. somebody had this idea. And uh, then somebody gave that person actual money, and and it was made. So yeah, I definitely love uh, love that as a theme that runs throughout this movie. So we sort of like are pulled out of the the production, and we find ourselves in a, a board meeting room uh, with with Frank Castle, or excuse me, not Frank Castle, uh, <laughs> yeah. Frank Cross. That would have been an interesting movie, but more on that in a moment. We uh, were in this this meeting room where he's being shown all of these uh, pitches and ideas and um, for commercials that are that are going to be going in um, television spots for for this live production of uh, of a Christmas Carol. And we quickly see that this guy, Frank Cross, is just about the worst kind of person that you could imagine it, like when when you imagine a scrooge type character would you say that he nails that or or where are we at with that what is your take i don't know he kind of transcends it i guess it's it's also because it's bill murray that we also already like him a little bit True. that i do find there's something about him just just like it, it's just great how out of touch with reality he is and just so <laughs> full of himself and just mean spirited. It is entertaining to watch or sometimes when I see like a classic version of Scrooge, I'm like kind of put off by him at the beginning. Mm-hmm. This one is just like, I don't know. It's because it's Bill Murray. We're already expecting something 
you know, funny out of him. And he is, he does have a sarcasm about his humor in most of his films. So, yeah, I just think it's great. Yeah, he definitely chews that up. And and as you say, it's hard not to like him off the bat, even though he's supposed to be this this really bad guy, because he, and I think it's just Bill Murray. He's got this charisma that just, I mean, he, he radiates charisma. Mm-hmm. Um, he's rolling natural 20s left and right. So, yeah, you, you get that idea that he's just the worst kind of person imaginable. Um, but you do get that comedic element, which, which again, lends itself more to this being a comedy than a, uh, than a straight-up horror movie. But, but we will get there. Um, he... <laughs> He's very quick to dismiss one of his employees for uh, voicing a bit of uh, a disagreement, I guess, and and how Frank decided to to market this story. Um, and that character, Elliot, is played by Bobcat Goldthwait, which, in my mind, if if it weren't for Bill Murray, I think that Bobcat Goldthwait would be the MVP of of this film. What what do you think? Oh, absolutely, especially near the end. It's just like he is one of the most <laughs> entertaining characters of the film. Yeah, I mean, and and again, I think that when it comes to, to Bobcat Goldthwait, there are probably people that absolutely love him and and people that just do not care for him and his, his brand of, of comedy and presentation. I don't know very many people that feel sort of, you know, lukewarm or in between... <laughs> when it comes to that guy um and also we're introduced to grace uh frank's assistant and uh she is a very important character in this movie because uh not only does she live up to her name and handle frank in such a way that i could never (laughs) I would have quit so many times, but she's uh, she's in a situation where she has a son that uh, that does not speak. And what's interesting, or, or at least to me, is I had made up this elaborate backstory for this character or these characters, I should say, that I believed like full on. And then when I watched this movie again, when I was an adult, I was like, wow, <laughs> like that, that wasn't in the movie at all. <laughs> um, but, but Grace handles all of this and Frank tremendously well, I think. But I got to say in this whole scene or the, this whole series of scenes at the beginning of the movie, you really start to see what an asshole Frank is mm-hmm. um, when he, let's say for lack of a better term, critiques, <laughs> her son's art that's hanging on the wall (laughs) and he just rips it down. That would, that would have been the definite line for me. I would have kicked his ass up and down. Oh yeah, absolutely. Yeah. They, they definitely make him as nasty as possible. Um, I think to kind of offset how we feel about Bill Murray anyways. Mm -hmm. And I believe the little boys stopped talking. I know they mentioned it later, something about how he hasn't spoken since his father died. Ah, right. They did say that. You're absolutely right. Yeah, because I had the timelines mixed up, and my wife asked me how old the boy was supposed to be, because she thought he was four, and I was like, well, no, mm-hmm. that that's another character that's mentioned later in the movie. Uh, 
Because it's like, well, his dad died five years ago. She's like, well, if he's four, how does he know? I was like, no, 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 that's not right. So, yeah, I remember her just kind of mentioning that offhand. They don't say much more about it. Yeah, yeah, not. Yep, you're absolutely right. I remember that now. Um, and he, he, I guess, would be the the tiny Tim mm-hmm. of of this movie, if there was one. <laughs> so that's the that's sort of the situation there. The thing is, after he rips that down, he insists that Grace work late and she has an appointment for her boy. And uh, so, I mean, you know, it's not anyone who's ever scheduled an appointment with a doctor in this day and age knows that you can't just not show up. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, you're either going to get charged or you're going to have to wait uh, months to get that appointment again or both. And uh, so he makes her work late. And that's just. The, you know, I mean, it's Christmas. That's probably one of the worst things that you can do to a working person who wants to spend time with their family. Uh, interesting tidbit, though, the director, Richard Donner, was in a similar situation. And it kind of makes me wonder if this got worked in mm-hmm. uh, based on what had happened. So uh, the Paramount executives wanted them to to continue working on a really tight schedule uh, that coincided with Christmas, which is, is a pretty funny coincidence. And, uh, you know, Richard Donner was not about to make his, his cast and crew work on Christmas when they should be with their families. So he fired them, uh, officially, which sort of halted production as you imagine it would. Yeah. Uh, and then rehired them after Christmas, which was pretty clever. It makes me think highly of, of Richard Donner, despite, not being familiar with him otherwise. Mm-hmm. We get into that spooky shit pretty quickly. Uh, I think the film had only been running for about 18 minutes when we get our first uh, supernatural, as it were, encounter, or or Frank gets his first supernatural encounter. And this would, of course, be the, the Jacob Marley analog, mm-hmm. uh, which is, in this case, his old boss, which was his mentor, uh, and and the guy who kind of got him rolling, as it were, uh, within the industry, and somebody that Frank kind of modeled his life on, which, as you'll see, uh, it was much to his detriment. Mm-hmm. So this this is really interesting because it's the first showcase of some really really great practical effects. But also, I kind of want to know how you feel about this being our analog for Jacob Marley, because there are some there are some differences in how we're introduced to these characters and kind of the elements that they incorporate. I think he's hauling in a golf bag. Yeah. Uh, you know, so there are no chains. We don't really get that that symbolism. And I was just wondering if you thought, you know, is that necessary? Is that something we need? Or do you feel like this scene serves its purpose? I like him. And I guess we have to defer everything to being for comedic effect, because I guess he can't seem like he's too terribly tortured, because we are getting a lot of laughs in that scene. Because I do think that later on, when you see him alive, he doesn't really seem like that bad of a guy other than being a chauvinist and a womanizer. He's not like, to me, what I think of for Jacob Marley, just being exactly like a traditional screw being a miserly bastard i feel like you know he's just kind of like what you would expect i guess from a someone that was the head of a television network uh, at his time but yeah mm-hmm. i love how 
I love the practical effects and I love that it's how funny it is that he's just so like dusty and decrepit and, you know, um, Bill Murray tries to shoot at him, you know, and he says something about he, he um, accidentally shoots the glass that he's pouring for himself and he, I can't remember what he's drinking, but he's like, you know, take it easy on the bourbon or whatever it is. He's like, <laughs> yeah. shoot me, Frank, but take it easy on the bourbon. And then, you know, he drinks and the the liquid pours out of him where he got shot and the little mouse pushes the golf ball out of his head. And, you know, it's just, I think that's, that's great because, you know, you get those laughs and then he is still very uh, creepy and unsettling, especially the, the further along he, or I guess the closer he gets to Frank and the mm-hmm. more Frank does not, immediately uh accept what he's telling him or that the that the ghost is real he thinks you know it's a hallucination just like the traditional scrooge does and the closer he gets to him and the more angry he gets he is pretty frightening especially when he takes his sunglasses off yeah yeah he has just those empty black sockets that was scary and you're absolutely right because i remember watching this when i was uh when i was a wee lad and those were the the moments where I knew, like right when he came in, that I was going to laugh and everything was fine, but I knew that there was a line, and once he crossed that line, I was going to be scared. Yeah. <laughs> so every time I watched it, I was always frightened after uh, he took those glasses off and, and grabs Frank and pushes him through the glass, which kind of you know warps and liquefies, yeah. and then he's sealed on the other side. And, and man, that's, that's scary. That was great. I... Number one, that Danny Elfman theme just like comes in whenever any of the ghosts I feel like are present or, mm-hmm. you know, it's getting ready to transition a scene. It just feels like the heightened part of any moment. And yeah, I love that he's just like hanging there and he's just like laughing while Frank's like holding that arm and the arm is breaking away before he falls. Yeah. Like, Merry Christmas. It's just like <laughs> I love how I guess cynical some of the movie is and like kind of just uh I wouldn't say it's technically like just black humor, but I do like how much fun it takes in some mm-hmm. of the spookier elements. Yeah, and and again, I'm just I'm uh, drawn back to those effects because they are not uh, they're not throwaway. Um, they're in fact the focal point of some of those scenes, which makes them so frightening. Um, the arm, for example you can actually see all the layers of, of like dust and, and decayed flesh mm-hmm. giving way. And then you see sort of like the, the mummified muscle tissue around the bone and then the bone as it snaps. Uh, um, so yeah, those things very detailed and, uh, and, and very unsettling for sure. So you're right. It's, it's great how they kind of, uh, they have these really dark, elements that would be considered horrific i think on their own but they're kind of like laced with comedy and it creates a very interesting mixture or or amalgamation i think Mm -hmm. yeah it's very macabre and i think that's what i like about it that those ghost elements they don't like you know they don't pull any punches it is like grotesque creatures or there is like something funny involved i would say the you know the ghost of christmas present just as that ghost is represented within the traditional story is not meant to be a frightening character. Uh, mm-hmm. So that to me is just purely funny, but I, there's so many things that just, I, I think the film just delights in torturing Frank because yeah. he's so terrible. And that's, 
it's just funny to see him like kind of unravel. Absolutely. And the way that that scene is, uh, is, is ended when you see the, the buttons on the, on the telephone are, are pressed. And I'm assuming that was John Forsyth's spirit or whatever that did that, that called Frank's yeah. ex-girlfriend, Claire. Yeah, I think so. That that's always how I interpreted it. Yeah, the the first several times I watched it, and again as an adult, having watched it a, a good handful of times, um, I just thought that it was a general spook, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think that as you learn later, kind of what what happens with Frank and and Claire, and the night that he's invited to dinner. Uh, with with John Forsythe, you kind of get the idea that he knows that that would be the place to go back to, mm-hmm. um, or that that would be the person to to help set Pat. Uh, excuse me, to set Frank on this this path of redemption. So I think so. I think you're right. I think that 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 would have been him. Um, <laughs> uh, we get into some <laughs> some some tricky business where these. These ghosts are sort of interspersed with, I, I don't want to call it nonsense, um, but scenes where we are, are just odd, uh, where odd things are taking place, and I'm not 100% sure that they're necessary for the exposition. Um, for example, after Claire shows up, they're on set with the solid gold dancers, and uh, that's just weird. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I thought it was weird as a kid to see these, you know, scantily clad women in top hats dancing, you know, and uh, in retrospect, I was like, of course you thought it was weird when you were a kid. Uh, You'll probably appreciate it as an adult. You know, even as an adult, it's a little weird. (laughs) I guess it, it just goes along with the commentary of how overblown and totally, I guess, how far this version of a Christmas Carol has come. Mm-hmm. It's, it, it is, it speaks to the nature of the television network itself and whatever you believe that the current state of television and entertainment, as far as um, that goes at this point in the eighties. But yeah, I think that's what that, you know, I guess it, that is there for comedy, but I like to think that it's just like, look at how trashy, and yeah. adult we can make Christmas. Like, look what we can do. This is not part of a Christmas carol, but we're going to have nearly topless women dancing. In our <laughs> Charles Christmas Dickens would have wanted to see her nipples. <laughs> yeah. So, of course, that's when Claire shows up um, after he called her and left that sort of ranting message yes. uh, after his boss left. So she shows up during during this whole thing with the solid gold dancers and a... Uh, and a dilemma wherein we can't get reindeer antlers to stick to a, to, to a <laughs> mouse's head. And, of course, Frank suggests staples. Yeah, yeah, that which, is, like, one of my favorite parts. <laughs> yeah, and, and, of course, Claire flips out. Um, and Claire is played by Karen Allen, by the way. And I don't know about you, but I feel like they probably couldn't have cast anyone better to play this character because there's just, I mean, obviously I'm thinking back to Indiana Jones and 
I love yeah. Raiders of the Lost Ark, but I also f- kind of feel like Karen Allen just has this wholesomeness yes. uh, that really is. Um, she she lends that to this character in in a, an incredible way. Yeah, she really is very just like sweet and warm in comparison to to Frank. So I think that's that that nice. Um, that is a nice addition that is not in the traditional Christmas Carol. And my wife just recently read it, so I can't speak to exactly what mm-hmm. Scrooge's lost love was like. Um, but sometimes she seems to be a bit of a non-character after he moves past that point. In this mm-hmm. story, like she remains to be a character in Frank's present timeline, and she is part of his, like you said, it's redemption rather than just, you know, being this sad memory that is looked back on. Yeah, and and it's interesting that you say that, or I'm glad that you said that, because one of the other things about this movie is that at, we kind of were shown snippets of the uh, rehearsals from this production that they're doing of, uh, of uh, Scrooge or A Christmas Carol. Um, and sort of when we're shown these scenes from the story they're kind of peppered in to uh, match up or sync up to where frank is at in the the story of uh of ebenezer scrooge and so so where he is at in a christmas carol frank is also at and the exposition is uh is given to us in such a way that that it syncs up with with the production of of their a christmas carol which again is that sort of meta aspect to this movie that makes it almost, at least to me, dreamlike. Yes, very surreal. Exactly. Uh, So (laughs) there's one thing that happened in this scene that I do want to address before we move on. And I I thought I heard it the right way, and I had to go back and and turn on the captions to read it. Because it's a bit of dialogue, but the way that Bill Murray delivers it, it's kind of choked up and a little muttered. Um, and he's talking about how after he, or before he had called her, he was probably having a hallucination that was brought on by uh, like some bad seafood or some bad clams. Hey, yes. <laughs> and and he, he said, you probably know what I'm about to say. Uh, but he says to, to not eat clams. What the hell is life for when he's talking to Claire? And I just, I kind of felt like that was given with a little bit of a wink. I don't know. Maybe I'm just deviant, but it was Bill Murray that was saying it. So I kind of felt like it was intended to be very dirty. That's funny. It probably was. I didn't even think about it. I, I did remember him saying that when I watched it earlier this week, that he was just like, you know, probably, probably some bad clams or something like that. Yeah, yeah, they were talking about going out to get seafood. It's like to not eat clams. What? Anyway, um, <laughs> I'm probably just revealing to everyone exactly how far into the gutter my mind is at any given time. <laughs> I mean, hey, it's it's no worse than a James Bond movie, right? Oh yeah, <laughs> <laughs> we're all perverts. Frank is is sort of thwarted um at this point in the story by this uh this this joe hollywood guy what is his name bryce i think um that the uh the head of the network is is bringing um bringing in to kind of oversee the production because i think that they feel like maybe 
Frank is on his way out. So he's kind of got this this annoyance of of this character being there that he thinks is there to supplant him. And truth be told, I don't really know what purpose that character serves. He doesn't really add anything to the movie, I don't think. Yeah, I'm not sure. And the reason I can't remember his character's name is because I know that the actor is John Glover and Mm -hmm. that he did let the Riddler's voice in the animated series. So I... I just hear that voice, and that's all I could think of when I watched it. But I do think it's supposed to, especially when he's starting to direct the show himself, to also show how uh, capable he is at mm-hmm. be, at getting the job done and treating people kindly in comparison to Frank. And that's about all I can really think of as far as his purpose within the story. He he does do that, but you know, and it's funny you said the animated series, by the way, because like I knew exactly what you were talking about. You didn't even have to say Batman. He has kind of this uh, this snarky kind of uh, of sarcasm about him too, though, uh, where he just kind of he just drips that sort of that fake kindness i think that oh, one yes, would associate definitely. with Joe Hollywood, as it were. So he's he's having this meeting with this guy. And uh, they're in a restaurant with uh, the head of the network. Gosh, I cannot remember the character's name, um, but he was played by, uh, oh gosh, a fairly or very prominent old school Hollywood actor whose name is escaping me right now. Uh, Robert Mitchum. God, how could I forget Robert Mitchum? Uh, But they're in this restaurant and he starts hallucinating all of these bizarre things. Uh, which only serves to make him look like he's becoming more and more unraveled um, to the point that he sees this waiter that's on fire and he goes to to put him out. And of course, he's not on fire. Everybody thinks he's a <laughs> fool. But that's the prelude to the ghost of Christmas past, which, um, by the way, when he, he extinguishes that guy, um, he says, I'm sorry, I thought you were Richard Pryor. Yeah. As a child, totally over my head. Now, hilarious. <laughs> yeah, and then especially if you if you definitely watch those Richard Pryor specials. <laughs> I was as I was watching this, one of the things that I had kept my eye out for was what would what would date well and what wouldn't. And I was surprised by how many of the jokes um, didn't make me cringe when they landed. You know, I mean, some of it. Oh yeah. Is you know subject to interpretation, but I I didn't really see anything that made me feel like um, it's it's it would be something that wouldn't fly today, as it were. Mm-hmm. So the ghost of Christmas past, and I I think at this point I'd kind of like to <laughs> I kind of like to talk about this film just in terms of the ghosts moving forward because that's really what takes us to the end of the film. Um, so the ghost of Christmas past is played by uh, old David Joe. Which was a blast. It's something that will always stick out in my head when I think about this movie. Um, Because as a kid, of course, this was probably the most entertaining part to me. Yeah, he's my favorite ghost. I think the designs of all of them, He, especially at the beginning, is just so maniacal Mm -hmm. that he's so entertaining to watch. And he just, he looks very uh, sinister and evil almost. His eyebrows and his ears, but he's just like, driving around like crazy and like laughing and it, it, again it's like him taking delight in frank's fear and <laughs> it's just like him just like ragging on him I, I don't know he's my favorite ghost in the film for his his 
personality and for his design. And he's also the most jovial, um, which I think does reflect fairly well uh, back to you know the original story and at least some of the portrayals that you see um, on stage and, and on screen. Of course, you know, like when we get to the Ghost uh, Christmas Present, uh, played by the absolutely just stunningly wonderful Carol Kane. Mm-hmm. Uh, she's kind of like the uh, sprightly fairy or, or pixie, and, and that seems to be pretty consistent. Uh, I have no trouble admitting to you all that the ghost of Christmas past and that whole thing with Frank when he sees himself as a little boy uh, <laughs> it gets me every time. Oh, yeah. And uh, I don't know. I, I love the that part in the story anyways, just like looking back at the past. I feel like that's really important for seeing kind of where Scrooge comes from as a character. But to me, I always just think about that that actor um, being in Christmas Vacation, all the National Lampoon movies. He just the Sands mustache. Oh, yeah. Oh, my God. You're right. Yeah. <laughs> and I believe he's actually the voice of um, the Flying Dutchman in SpongeBob and Captain Knuckles in The Marvelous Misadventures of Flapjack. He's got a, a very distinct voice. He does. And that mustache, you know, without the mustache, I didn't recognize him at all. It's uh, uh, it's Brian Doyle Murray. I believe that's right. So he's got to be that. And I never put this together, but is is he a sibling of Bill Murray? You know, I'm not sure. I never thought about it, but he sure is in a lot of movies, either with Bill Murray or in that kind of National Lampoon uh, arena. I feel like he's in. Uh, the movies with a lot of the same characters like that. Oh, what the hell? My universe just expanded. Uh, because I, I know John Murray, who plays his brother in the film, they mm-hmm. is his actual sibling. Um, yeah, that's... and, and I, Wow, okay, cool. I'm going to have to look into that, but I'm going to go ahead and say that that's probably the case, which means that I had no idea that two uh, iconic actors uh, from... from uh, from my life and and whose work I appreciate were, were related. If so, that's going to be awesome. (laughs) Um, So that, uh, yeah, it, it always gets to me because whenever you see, uh, and and I'm sure, you know, um, this, this is the whole point, but whenever you see a sort of curmudgeonly person or somebody who's just a real asshole and you see a moment from their life. It doesn't necessarily have to be uh, from their past, but just a moment where they show um, compassion or a bit of tenderness. You know, it really kind of, um, for me anyway, it, it it does move me because it, it does show that, you know, not everyone who appears to be a monster is actually, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, or maybe there was some some trauma that that brought this you know about. And I know what you're thinking, you know, seeing pictures of of Hitler uh, in in uh, his sweet little moments in time. <laughs> fuck that guy and fuck Hitler all the way. <laughs> that guy, oh man, go go sucking dicks on an airplane for sure. Uh, we have no no love uh, for him or any of his ilk in this house i can tell you that so okay i guess what i'm saying is there are exceptions okay um but yeah 
generally speaking, seeing that sort of tenderness uh, from from someone who's generally a, a very um, unpleasant person always affects me. Mm-hmm. And uh, so one of the things that we get from this, though, and and honestly speaking, it's the <laughs> it's the only gripe that I have with the story is it, we see his meeting of of Claire and how the two of them meet, and it's really silly. I mean, it's dopey even, but mm-hmm. I love it. You know, the chemistry between those two actors is is amazing in my mind, and uh, you kind of observe their meeting and then kind of how their relationship progresses um, to the point that uh, you know Frank is. You know, he, he's going from basically being a gopher or errand boy uh, for the network to being the guy inside Frisbee the dog, which <laughs> you know, doesn't appeal to me. But Frank seems to really appreciate and enjoy it. Um, so they're in a fairly solid relationship at this point, And he's invited to dinner by uh, the president of the network, which, you know, um, any reasonable person, I think, would see that that's somebody that you wouldn't say no to, or you wouldn't turn down that opportunity. Yeah. However, they have plans with their friends to, to eat, uh, eat dinner together on Christmas. So I definitely see both sides. Um, and at this point, I don't think that would really be a discussion for me. I would be going home, uh, you know, with my wife or girlfriend and we'd be having dinner. I feel like he jumped at that just a little too hard. Like, I didn't feel like there was enough uh, of a transition into that attitude. You know what I mean? Like, I yeah. just, I, I didn't feel like Frank had become that person. I don't know. He was pretty uh, uptight whenever they were having their Christmas party. He was the only one still working. And I guess at that point, his, <laughs> you know, just like Scrooge being like so obsessed with his career and business this uh, version, uh, as in Frank, has become, I guess, obsessed with just the trying to rise up in the ranks of the television network that he's, you know, he's Frisbee the dog now, so he's he's got to take this opportunity to have dinner with the head of the network. Ah, uh, I see. Yeah, that's actually, that is a very astute observation. I, uh, I, I guess I just felt like seeing them uh, together, Frank and Claire, Mm-hmm. that's i guess because to me i would place a tremendous amount of value on that relationship um so i probably couldn't mentally justify it but you're absolutely right as far as what we've been shown of frank that does make a lot of sense so yeah i guess looking at it that way it's not it's it's more of a non-issue um it's just hard for me to understand i guess so yeah no that makes very good sense thank you for for pointing that out that i mean that tracks totally and completely uh so what happens i mean they they break up like right then and there i know it's very sad like i i especially feel for her because it's just like you know and i think the ghost even says it too or frank says it to himself that he's such an idiot to to let her go and to not like you know not take care of that situation or just be there for her when he should have been. And I feel like that's, that's a very important scene because I don't, I don't know if they do that in most of the classic Scrooge stories, but to see him, like I I always watch him up at Christmas Carol. So Mm -hmm. I'm following that story. And really the version of Scrooge is like, just stop showing me these things that make me sad and take me away from here. And in that one, I liked that Frank was commentating on his own experiences and, 
mm-hmm. you know, like hindsight, like, why did you do this? You idiot. Like, you know, I, I like that because, you know, I feel like that's, that's very realistic. Like we do that to ourselves and yeah, we're just absolutely. thinking about the past. There is yeah. like, you know, I, we all would do that. We all would be like, what's wrong with you? Why didn't you do this? Yeah, no, that's, that's 100% accurate. I mean, I can't tell you how often that, that happens to me. You know, you're just driving from one job to the next and, you know, 10 minutes down the road, some random memory will flash before you and you're like, God, <laughs> could have handled that better. <laughs> But uh, I will say my absolute favorite thing about the Ghost of Christmas Past or that whole uh, situation in the past is that sweet mullet. <laughs> yeah, that's like just the one of the worst wigs. It is insane to me that uh, you know it was done for comedic effect, but it's it's just like crazy that later when she's like, "Your hair's so short, it makes you look so grown up," and I was like, "His hair doesn't look short to me now," but it was in insane back then yeah i love it in fact i think that i'm i'm probably gonna do that because my hair is is thinning um very much the the way that that bill murray's hair was thinning at that point in his career so i think i'm just gonna i'm think i'm just gonna grow the mullet out man (laughs) i i have no problem with that i mean i well I, i i say that but i i'm pretty sure that my wife would would do me the service of uh, of removing that party in the back at some point when I was sleeping. <laughs> I don't think I'm allowed to have a mullet. Never mind, scratch that. It is it is sad uh, to see how that transpired and how that developed. And again, um, I I feel for Frank, and you kind of get the sense, as you said, that he realized that these were things that he should have done differently. But one of the things that they they show us as well is that he he fights it, especially after this. He he decides that he's going to go down to uh, the outreach where Claire works, helping to uh, you know shelter and and feed the the homeless of uh, the city. And he's he's got this long rant about how he's going to give her this dressing down, and you know if he if he wants a wife, he'll buy one. <laughs> <laughs> But then he gets there and like it's a total 180, you know, the attitude melts and and he kind of kind of comes back to being that that softy. But he does a 180 from there, you know, which gives us a full 360 back into an incredible asshole. Mm -hmm. I'm not really sure what was going on in his mind at that point, but he says something to Claire that will become important later in the movie. Um I think they're tr- he's trying to go or they're trying to go on this this date that they had set up. But um, the volunteers at, at the shelter need help and she just needs a minute and he won't give it to her. Mm-hmm. Um, and he, he tells her that he that she needs to scrape them off. And if she's going to save somebody, save herself, which is probably the most selfish thing that he said in in the picture. I do like how this version is very slow to change like he's. Uh, and not not immediately accepting of what's going on around him and and open to this change of heart and redemption. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, he, he's just continues to put his foot in his mouth and be a jerk. And the one thing I do like that it always sticks in my head from that scene is the uh, three homeless people that are convinced that he's a character named Dick Burton. And that he's like a Shakespearean actor, 
and yeah. they're asking him to quote Hamlet, and he just like starts spouting off like garble, and then they're just like <laughs> acting like he's just saying like all the lines and just like in in uh, you know enamoring him, and and then he's like, all right, beat it. But that the garble that he says for some reason is like always stuck in my head for days after we watched this. And he's not saying anything like real, but I don't know. It's just like the last thing is like, for swear, I swear, for swear. Just like (laughs) nonsense. And that part to me, like, is always super funny. Yeah. And it's one of those scenes, too, that will just pop into my head randomly. And I can never for the life of me remember what it's from. So when I was watching this again for the show, it was just like, oh, my God, (laughs) there it is. Finally. (laughs) Because that's not really something that you can, uh, you know, sometimes you get a a hook in your head and and you'll have the lyrics so you can like Google it or something. That whole bit of dialogue is so fucked up that there's not really any way to like search (laughs) for it. So I was really happy um, that it turned out to be in this movie and I'm probably going to go back to that. Those guys uh, that are that are out there. Gosh, what was the guy's name? Was it Herman? Was he yeah, one of the one of the named guys? So that character kind of ends up playing um, a, a more prominent role in the story with the ghost of Christmas Present. And uh, Herman, by the way, was uh, Michael J. Pollard, which at the time, of course, I wasn't familiar with him. But I remember when I first watched House of a Thousand Corpses, and he <laughs> was in the beginning. I absolutely fell out. I couldn't believe what I was seeing. It was amazing. Oh, wow, I gotta go back and check it out. You know, I have never seen that movie all the way through. Really? Uh, yeah, it's... the DVD was scratched when I rented it, and oh, no. it always got to like one certain part, and I just I've never like tried to finish it or watch it ever again. Well, you know, when when I was a young man, I I thought that it was a fantastic movie, and in a lot of ways, I think it is. But being a little bit more critical of films now, mm-hmm. um, it's not that good. Uh, and and Rob Zombie will tell you that it's not that good. Um, and he, you know, he he's aware of why it wasn't that good. And then he kind of did something astounding, which you don't see terribly often, and that is he learned from his mistakes as a creator. And then gave us The Devil's Rejects, which is yes. fucking amazing. I do enjoy that movie. I remember thinking, like, wow, this is a lot better than what I had saw of House of a Thousand Corpses. But I think that's the one movie he's done that I like. I uh, I definitely have spoken about it before, but he's I like his music more than I like him as a director. Yeah, and I can definitely appreciate that. Um I I kind of started going the other way with that, and after Hellbilly Deluxe, I really started appreciating him as a as a visual artist and a and a writer director a little bit more. But I'm I'm here to tell you, I think that with the exception of Richard Brake as Doomhead, Thirty One kind of sucked. <laughs> In fact, it didn't kind of suck; it really sucked. Uh, which you know, I hate to say that, but sometimes when it's bad, it's bad, you know. Yeah, that's okay. I've never even seen it, so I'll take you at your word. Yeah, I I, I feel that, though. That's definitely not everybody's um, brand, I guess. My wife hates it. Um, Dude, <laughs> she like, really hates like, it. Dirty redneck like horror, and everybody's just cursing and 
yelling at each other all the time the whole time yeah exactly she says that it it's because it reminds her of home <laughs> yeah. um, which is true because that is very much uh <laughs> what it was like in in a lot of the areas that we grew up in um so so i can i can appreciate that i will never uh argue that point with anyone or uh or or you know look unkindly upon that attitude because i totally understand <laughs> um but yeah uh, get getting getting away from uh michael j pollard and house of a thousand corpses the ghost of christmas present uh, hmm i think i think this is my favorite part i think this is my favorite uh christmas experience that frank gets as it were mostly because of carol kane and uh watching this as an adult i learned a lot of stuff about myself that i didn't know before um but with that being said uh she is uh she plays the 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 bubbly uh fairy as we often see um with the caveat that she is supremely aggro (laughs) yeah she's a a sadist yeah um interestingly enough bill murray apparently wanted her to actually hit him Mm -hmm. uh, as they were filming this and i can't really i i I don't know man i don't know how much of that's exaggerated and if (laughs) she actually beamed him in the face with a toaster oh i'm sure not that no (laughs) but i'm telling you there's one scene i think it's right before they go into um uh grace's house where Mm -hmm. she has like smacked him and he says something about like don't you ever touch me again he's like she says oh but it's made your cheeks all nice and rosy and star twinkles in your eyes and it just (laughs) that always makes me laugh (laughs) that whole thing is just great and the two of them are are great together um uh, you know a lot of the stuff that happens in this movie um i now I've, i've heard that famously uh, Bill Murray and Richard Donner did not see eye to eye a lot and and didn't really get along here. But one of the writers I forgot to mention was, uh, gosh, what's his name? Mike, Michael, Michael O'Donohue, I think, who right. was uh, he was the head writer or one of the writers at any rate um, for SNL. So, you know, you kind of have like this this group of people again that uh that frequently work and associate with one another and i just i think there was a lot of really good chemistry between a lot of the actors in this film and uh i I think i'm I'm partial to the scene but carol kane and bill murray i think were just fantastic together Mm -hmm. Um, so what we see in this instance of a christmas present uh we see in particular his brother who's played right by his brother, which again, just makes the whole meta aspect of this movie really strange. Um, they are at a gathering that clearly Frank is not at. And, uh, you, you see that everybody else knows that Frank is an asshole, but his brother still loves him and looks up to him Mm -hmm. again. That's, that's very touching. I don't know if you get that as much. And, uh, and and you know the more traditional versions of this story. No, his nephew seems to agree with him that he's that his uncle Scrooge is a jerk and kind of. Uh, I know in the in the Muppet one at least they are playing a game of charades and he's like, "Oh, uh, who am I? I'm like a an unkind or unwanted creature and all this stuff." And he's you know saying that he's Ebenezer Scrooge, 
they're trying to guess that. And I was like, hey, he's kind of like bragging on his uncle. Like he knows that he's terrible. But, you know, I I think, again, that is a good addition to this version of the uh, or a retelling of A Christmas Carol is the fact that his brother does still love him and, you know, kind of sticks up for him. Yeah. You know, you know now that you mention it, uh, it almost seems... <laughs> Uh, and this is just off the top of my head, but it almost seems more like uh, positive reinforcement. You know, you you reward the behavior that you that you want to see. And in this particular instance, you know, uh, you're you're showing somebody that they do have value and that they are loved because, you know, maybe he doesn't feel that way about himself. Maybe that's why he's such an asshole. I, I, I don't see why, because it seems like he was given that at every turn and corner. But. But uh, even so, I think that it is a really cool change from the the more uh, traditional aspects of uh, of a Christmas Carol. Now, the thing that again in this movie throughout, there are all these instances where things are just funny as all get out, but then it snaps you back down to the the cold realities of mm-hmm. of things. And in this particular instance, um the ghost of Christmas present just sort of abandons him, uh, not, bef- you know, not before knocking the hell out of him <laughs> one last time, yeah. uh, but abandons him under the, the city street with, um, with Pollard. Uh, I can't remember. Herman was the character's name and he's frozen to death and he's still got that just sort of dopey grin. Yeah. that's a very good way to put it. Dopey grin. He's totally frozen and totally dead. And, you know, that's just very upsetting to me, um, especially when you consider that that's not uh, a, really an exaggeration that those things do happen um, with alarming frequency. I'm going to tell you, this was the first viewing where I realized that had really happened. I think it is always a part that is creepy to me. But for mm-hmm. some reason, I thought that it was a hallucination still. Mm-hmm. He was just thinking like, oh, this is what's going to happen if like I'm not good. And then, you know, later you do see him with the other ghost. And I was like, well, damn, I guess he died. I, I, I think for so long I had just thought it was like another hallucination that Frank had had. Yeah, it, it's it's weird, too, because you find new things when you watch this movie. Um, I think especially if you watched it a lot as a kid. And then, then you watch it again as an adult. And again, this is probably like the fourth or fifth time I've seen this movie since um, since I was over the age of, let's say, 24. And and uh, there are still things that I'm seeing differently or getting that I didn't see before. Yeah, that always tends to be the case, especially uh, especially with movies that I've watched in my childhood. Yeah. Uh, uh, one thing comes to mind when they were in the restaurant and uh, I don't think any of the spirits had showed up yet. And, you know, Frank was having those hallucinations and uh, he turns to the waiter and he's like, are you him? Are you he? (laughs) 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 Fucking correcting his grammar. (laughs) Yeah, I I never noticed that before, but I saw it this time and it, it struck me as some kind of funny. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, so stuff, stuff like that for sure. So Frank sees, because this person has frozen to death, uh, Herman, he sees that what Claire does is valuable and that the work she does really matters. And 
I think that having watched this this time, I really saw that. I mean, because before I understood it as, you know, moving the story forward. I, I understood it from, I guess, a technical point of view. But uh, on this watching, I saw for the first time that Frank saw probably also for the first time that what Claire did was not just like some stupid hobby or obsession. It was really important work that she was passionate about and that she actually was helping people. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. It makes what happens in his like final, um, final hallucination that much more, you know, kind of upsetting. And you realize he definitely has, you know, learned his lesson. Yeah, exactly. Um, and the other the other thing that I thought was always frightening about that was that when I was a kid, I thought they were trapped under the street, that like yeah. there was no way out. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I, I remember him saying uh, something about it being cold and filthy. And he was like, what is this Trump Tower? <laughs> yeah, that's the first time I ever heard it was this time. And I was like, oh, that's even it's so much sweeter now. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And it just goes to show you, too, that that people. Uh, and probably people in the know have have long considered him filth. I should hope so. Yeah, I, I work. Uh, I don't want to say I work for, but I have a customer who uh, is, is pretty well off. He lives in a very um, upscale neighborhood in, in Palm Harbor, and uh, so you know, every now and then you shoot the shit with your customers. And he started a kind of a political conversation with me, which I always fucking hate because most mm-hmm. of the time when somebody does that it's because they want to lecture me on you know the good that trump is doing or something like that and it's all i can do to not uh talk back <laughs> you wonder why those people think that you are receptive to what they're going to say like i don't know what it what it looks like on my face that makes some of those people think i'm going to agree with them <laughs> You know, I'm just I'm going to go out on a limb here and say that it's probably the color of your skin. Yeah, uh, I'm sure. You know, and that to me is, oh, God, it's infuriating. Um, but I don't want to get too far off that point. Um, so I think he's a retired banker. I think that that was his profession. And mm-hmm. and he was telling me that he worked in New York and, uh, you know, they had this project and that project going on and uh there came a time when trump wanted to insert himself into whatever they were doing or whatever and uh and i remember just breathing such a huge sigh of relief when he was like this guy no no he he is evil he he's a he's a shyster he's a bastard and i said there's no way we're doing business with this man i say you do business with this man i take my business somewhere else <laughs> Ah, uh, felt so much better after that. Oh, but yeah, so people, you know, people have known for a long time that he's a just fucking tool. Um, so yeah, that joke, uh, never caught that before, but having caught it this time, definitely, as you said, so, so much sweeter. Um, so yeah, we are almost there to, <laughs> to <laughs> the, the ghost of, of Christmas future, um, which the way they introduced the ghost in this movie is is just fantastic um because he's once again brought back to reality and i'm gonna try not to break out in the song here um he's brought back to reality and he's in the midst of the <laughs> this production uh where buddy hackett is talking about uh <laughs> being molested by sea urchins <laughs> <laughs> it's, i believe it's street urchins um <laughs> 
but yeah, so he uh, he's he passes the the ghost of Christmas Future, um, which is the actor in costume. Yes. For uh, the the actual production, and he flips out, of course, thinking that it's the actual ghost, which again just makes him look even more insane to all of these people that have sort of been watching him descend into this this madness. Um, but he gets back on the elevator. And uh, I guess he's headed to his office where he runs into <laughs> Elliot, who, who at this point we need to talk about Elliot because <laughs> Elliot's been through some shit. Yeah, you see him multiple times throughout the film, just becoming increasingly more um, just drunk and unhinged. And he's, I think it didn't happen twice. I'm trying to think if he kept trying to drink. And his bottle kept getting smashed. I know one time he's like, he just bought a bottle. He was brown bagging it. And then the cab driver that goes to Christmas Pass drives by, splashes him, and then the bag rips and smashes on the ground. (laughs) So I feel like at some point he he definitely got drunk enough to, to, uh, you know, be at the state that he's in by the end of the film. But he is at his most entertaining at this point. And I think it's because, number one, you get Bobcat Goldthwait in spades. So he's definitely more tolerable. And he is a, you see him as this meek and timid character at the beginning of the film. So I I definitely like feel, I enjoy his character a lot more because of that. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I remember being a kid watching this scene and, and even as a kid, like I sort of had this, uh, idea that, I mean, I knew that they were, they were kind of illustrating this and I think Frank even says something about it at one point, but I just like, I knew that he would smell really bad. (laughs) (laughs) And that always, that always bothered me even more because, you know, you've got like this, this deranged, like smelly thing shambling towards you with the (laughs) shotgun (laughs) mumbling incoherently. Um, But yeah, so Elliot is kind of like, I guess the he's sort of like the culmination or final result of all of Frank's misdeeds, uh, who, you know, in a lot of ways is probably like the real world, the real world analog to uh, the ghosts of Christmas future. You know, he's kind of like Frank's mistakes and, and vile nature coming back to haunt him. And, uh, so he's stalking Frank around very menacingly singing uh, Santa Claus is coming to town. <laughs> and before he can blow Frank's head off, Frank's calling the elevator and he falls in to uh, into the elevator with uh, with uh, the ghost of Christmas future, which this time is the ghost of Christmas future. And man, let me tell you, this this whole segment is dark yes (laughs) i mean it is grim and i i want to start off first by talking about the the character design for the ghost of christmas future um i mean it's pretty traditional and that he's uh tall dark robed hooded however his face is only a skull uh a couple of different times i think um predominantly it's a television screen Mm mm-hmm that shifts through different uh, images, uh, horrific um, 
horrific images like distortions of frank's face yeah and just all kinds i mean like whoever designed that i think they were on their a game because that almost that was almost too good for this film i think yeah especially for him being like that is his life television is his life uh that is like what he is you know focused on instead of his you know, friends and family and loved ones. So, and, and to take that and like twist it to make it like his, you know, worst nightmare to, to reflect back on like how consumed he is by this, you know, business and all of his life decisions. I think that that is so great. And I like what you said too. It's not just the skull it shifts around to like his face as well, just to kind of like put it back towards him, like how, how rotten he is. Yeah. It's, it's really disturbing. Uh, and I wonder if Brian K. Vaughn kind of borrowed from that a little bit for, uh, uh, Prince robot and saga. I don't know if you ever read that, but I remember, um, I remember thinking that this time, but yeah, this, this part two, it kind of takes on, um, a very, Again, a very Burton-esque quality. Now, I know I said that at the beginning of when we were talking about the beginning of the movie, but but this one in particular feels very uh, influenced by Tim Burton, especially with the sort of the asymmetrical set design, mm-hmm. um, the color palette used in uh, in these scenes. Very upsetting. I know one of them is uh, um, a hospital. Where where Calvin is living now in a padded cell because I guess he never spoke, yeah. um, you know, which kind of suggests that if Claire or I'm sorry, not Claire, but if Grace would have been allowed to spend more time with him and I don't know, maybe keep her appointments, that uh, <laughs> that they would have been able to help him. Um, and then of course we see Claire in in another situation. Uh, where she has decided to scrape them off and save herself. And she's, you know, living the high life and, and has built wealth for herself and has become very dismissive of, of the needy and, and people asking for help. And it's just, it's really upsetting to see. Yeah. There are those, there are literal street urchins coming up to the restaurant where she is eating at with her, uh, hoity toity friends and her makeup is just so severe yeah, it, like it's very like white face and red lips, like dark red, and the eye makeup and stuff is just very harsh. And uh, I like what you said about the Tim Burton thing. I don't know if you and me said it, but I do know that I mentioned to an artist buddy of mine that did the Scrooge piece that I said this to me is one of the most Tim Burton-y movies that he didn't direct. There's something about <laughs> yeah. that. I think it's it's obviously Danny Elfman's score. Right. But the, the ghost designs and things it just parts of it really made me think of early 80s tim burton and um in the and i don't know if you mentioned that the little ghoulies inside of the ghost of christmas future that he looks at in the elevator like freaked me out as a kid i knew that i i had it down in my notes to mention and i i just forgot so i'm glad you did mention that god damn that was just I mean, I, I, I'm I'm going to level with you here. Um, I have never actually read um, the Dickens novella, mm-hmm. so I don't know all of the details that come into play 
when uh, when we're talking about these spirits. But I I want to say that um, that I've just sort of absorbed through you know cultural osmosis that in in the the written work there is an aspect of I thought it was the ghost of Christmas past where beneath his robe. Yes, I know what you're talking about. It's because it's in the. Uh, I'll have to ask my wife if it's in the book, but I remember that weird Jim Carrey CGI Scrooge mm-hmm. where yes, it was a ghost of Christmas present. Like right before he dies, he has, um, I, I know they're supposed to represent something. It's like these children are mm-hmm. at his feet and they're all malnourished looking. And then he just like dies and turns into a skeleton. Super freaky. Yeah. And, and see, that's what I mean. Like I, I need to read that. And oh, I mean, cause it's something I need to do as a human being. Um, but also just because there are those aspects that I kind of vaguely am aware of, but but don't understand um, or, or, you know, I don't grasp their meaning. So mm-hmm. I definitely do need to do that. But I'm wondering if maybe they just switched that up a little bit and, uh, you know, thought that it would be a cool thing to add, you know, not necessarily getting into the symbolism. But I mean, it's freaky. Oh, yeah. And I love it that it's actually played for laughs that he's already been. Uh, scared by the ghost of Christmas future that is for the production uh, for his television company. And then he like meets the real one and he looks in there and he sees those little horrific monsters <laughs> and he looks at it, closes the room, looks back in again. And he's like, did we do that? Was very <laughs> yes, that was, that was tremendous. That's uh the ghost of Christmas future though, obviously is our, our last ghost and, uh, the last thing that we see or the last element of the future that Frank is shown as his own funeral, which um, I guess you don't really see um, in some of the other productions. You, you kind of just, I think Scrooge sees his grave uh, and, um, and that whole business. But in this, we actually see the funeral and uh, his brother is there, you know, and uh, his, his brother's wife. And I, that's pretty much it. Those are the only people in attendance, isn't it? Yeah, as it do you see him by the graveside or is it, it's his cremation, right? Yeah, yeah, which to me when I was a child I had never like the first time I saw this I was not familiar with the concept of right. cremating. So this was brand new to this guy. <laughs> it freaked <laughs> yeah. me out. Oh yeah, that's much more horrific than seeing your grave is that he like watches them do this and then all of a sudden he appears in the coffin yeah. and like the flames are coming up around his feet. And then there's that that choir, the, oh, the yeah. singing again. God, yeah, that whole that whole part is really scary. I think it, it's it's truly horrific. Um, but yeah, so that that was the first time I'd ever uh, come into contact with that information, <laughs> cremation, which is ironic because I would prefer to be cremated now. Um, oh, yeah. Yeah, don't don't waste money and space on my corpse. That's just yeah, <laughs> that's silly. Nobody needs to be responsible for that. Yeah. <laughs> I wasted enough space in life. Don't don't <laughs> let me waste space in death, please. <laughs> so with that, he's in this coffin, and and as you said, you see him start to burn, and his feet catch on fire, and just that that choir sort of uh, builds up and builds up and. It's at that moment that he's brought again back into the waking world, uh, into the barrel, or, or two barrels, I should say, <laughs> of Elliot's shotgun. And he just sort of like casually brushes it aside <laughs> and, and starts professing his, 
you know, his newfound take on life and and these understandings that he's come to, which um, Elliot, of course, is still presumably murderous and also very drunk. Uh, but Frank is able to to convince him not to murder him by what does he promise him? He gives him his office and a raise of twice his salary. I think so. Yeah, I think Elliot's just like dumbfounded at this point, like as to what's happening. Yeah. So, and this is a really weird thing too, because what develops at this point is that like Elliot becomes his henchman. Yeah. <laughs> <It's> <laughs> yeah. So the two. So he has Elliot basically uh hold the uh the the control room or the you know the production control yeah. room hostage uh while he crashes the uh the last act of uh the christmas carol that the that the studio is putting on which of, of course infuriates everybody but mm-hmm. like the more manic frank gets and uh the more he is you know professing his his new perspective on life and how he knows that he was such a tool uh it's funny because everybody that is working there knows that he is telling the truth (laughs) (laughs) and that he's having some kind of religious experience um but in a, a very ironic twist i suppose you could call it an ironic twist the the studio decides to capitalize on the moment um, because it is a very pro-Christmas moment, for lack of a better way to put it, uh, where he's selling the idea of Christmas. So they decide to just forget, uh, you know, Scrooge, forget a Christmas carol, just just stay on Frank yeah. and, uh, you know, let this be, you know, what we broadcast. And I, I say it's ironic because it was the network as an entity was just doing what was in its nature to do. Mm-hmm. Um, but the consequence or the result was that it brought a lot of people, a lot of happiness. So, you know, I guess sometimes a, a broken clock is still right twice a day, but yeah, so that whole thing was interesting. And in that from what I understand, there were, there was a script that Donner wanted Murray to follow, but I think that whole thing was ad-libbed at least in a large part and i don't know if if you watch you can see like towards the end uh bill murray's eyes are starting you know you can see that they're tearing up and i don't think that that was you know i don't think that that was something that they did uh for the film i think that he worked himself up into that frenzy (laughs) he certainly seems out of breath like the longer he goes on that whole spiel yeah it's a miracle and that miracle can happen Anyway, it can happen to anyone. Um, so yeah, it and that's really cool though that that message that they were um, presenting too. I think because you know you're like, oh, it's Christmas. This is that time of year where you it's kind of mandatory to be kind or to be nice. But I really like the way that um, it seemed to suggest that you you know you can be this type of person and you can do this type of stuff anytime. It doesn't have to be Christmas. Oh yeah, I mean his that his message is like one of my favorites, I guess, in any Christmas movie. But it, uh, again, another good addition to the original Christmas Carol, where I feel like it's a little more modernized and he can spread his message to a wider audience. My favorite part is uh, when he drops that baby. Uh, <laughs> it's just like this really quick thing, but he's like, "Oh no, don't worry, don't worry, it's a doll." It's just like such a a weird little like thing and i feel like at that point everybody like 
kind of like cracks up and just calms down a little bit because at first they're all like freaking out and then that like i don't know for some reason gets them calm enough to where they're they're actually listening to what he's saying and his message so yeah that that part's really good i mean that just feeds right into the end of the movie yeah and and then you get the you know the tiny tim moment the the god bless us everyone uh where where calvin speaks which I guess is like, you know, that's the Christmas miracle for, for Grace and her family. Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, that is the actual end of the movie. Uh, you did mention before that you kind of see all the spirits return, and Herman's there. Um, and yeah. also the gangling, tortured creatures that were inside the Ghost of Christmas Future. They've got, like, party hats and are yeah. blowing streamers, <laughs> you know. <laughs> Scrooge is a very unique film, and I think, as I mentioned before, I was afraid that there would be a lot of humor or jokes that fell flat this time or or would really stand out as not having aged well, but I don't think that's true. I, I think that this movie is is solid. Oh, absolutely. Um, I, I know my wife would probably not agree with me, but I told her, Yesterday, the you know, we always start watching Christmas movies in December. We've got our own ones on our list that we like to watch. But I feel like this is probably my favorite Christmas movie. I don't know what it is about it that it's just like I always enjoy watching it. And, of course, the music and everything. It's a, you know, my taste in Christmas music is pretty specific. I do like some of the classics. But, yeah, there's something about that Danny Elfman score that just is like, what I like to imagine for Christmas, it's kind of like, you know, cold and jaunty and melancholy mm-hmm. and kind of like sinister. I don't know. There's something about it that's like my favorite Christmas um, Christmas mood or something like that. That I just yeah. I really enjoy that. And yeah, it's just a uh, it's it's funny that and Muppet Christmas Carol. That's my my top two like renditions of this story the uh, of a christmas carol i just think it's yeah it's really it's it's fun and macabre yeah i i agree completely uh muppet christmas carol by the way is just amazing and fantastic and wonderful and if 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 you don't watch it at least one time at the Christmas season, well, you need to just fix your shit because there's something <laughs> that you're not doing right. Uh, now, I have heard that that's the most uh, accurate adaptation as far as um, the the literature is concerned. Uh, yeah, I wouldn't doubt it because Tony told me um, when she was reading the book, she's like, you know, this is Muppet Christmas Carol. They pretty much got everything exactly right. It's it's right in there. So <laughs> that's that pretty funny be- though, considering. Yes, and that one to me is one of my favorites because it's interspersed with like a lot of humor and music. And um, man, Gonzo has one of the best lines in that movie where I think it's right after the Marley Knocker comes to life mm-hmm. and, you know, Scrooge gets scared and all that stuff. And he goes inside and Rizzo and Gonzo are outside and he's like, oh, this is gonna, getting kind of spooky. Don't you think this is going to scare the kids? And Gonzo's like, eh, they'll be all right. This is just culture. And there's something about that little like throwaway line that it's this scary, uh, I guess, some like horrific element being in a story is just culture for children that I don't know. It I love it because um, I used to work at a charter school 
and there was a lot of helicopter parents that were just uber religious and bubble parents. Yeah. And I remember that one of them was talking to one of the teachers and they were saying that they started to let their daughter watch Fern Gully, but it just was too dark and they had to turn it off. And I was like, holy shit, you oh, think man. Fern Gully is too dark? And me and my wife just joked about that forever afterwards. It's like, well, you know, they'll be all right. It's just culture. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, God, I just, I feel bad for those kids. I do. I know you, they say you shouldn't judge, um, you know, but I, I do. I judge often. <laughs> it's uh, a I wonderful mean, message. You shouldn't, if something is scary in it, it's on purpose. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and, and you know what's funny, though, because that's a, a Jim Henson production. I remember um, when I was reading for um, the show we did uh, about the Dark Crystal uh, a long while ago now, I remember reading an interview with Jim Henson. And he was saying that uh, that, you know, this was per- it was purposefully a dark film, he said, because he felt that children needed to be afraid. Um, that experiencing fear was a healthy thing for children. And this is Jim Henson talking, mm-hmm. you know. Um, and I completely agree. I mean, it's, I just don't think it's, uh, you know, I don't want to get into a huge thing here, but yeah, I don't think it's good to uh, shelter children from the realities of, of life. There, there are benchmarks for things you, you know, maybe do or don't want them to be exposed to or, you know, you want it for them to gain a certain level of maturity before they're exposed to certain things. But, but yeah, trying to protect your kids from the actualities of life, I think, is um, not healthy and is only going to serve to hurt everybody in the long run. Yeah, it's better for them to experience fear in a safe environment, in a controlled environment like a film. You know, that's not going to hurt them. That's just like them seeing um, a scary situation or fear play out for the character on screen so they can see how they deal with it. Yeah. Yeah, I think that there's there's a lot to be said for that. And I, I do have a tremendous amount of uh, sadness and pity for kids that are, are overprotected in that way. Because it's like, oh, my God, just wait till you open a book. <laughs> You know, (laughs) your world is going to change irrevocably. Hopefully you can sneak one. That 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 is one of my favorite movies of all time, though, Scrooged. Um, I love it. My family loves it. It's one of those that we quote to each other constantly, um, (laughs) especially the closer that it gets to Christmas. So um, I'm really glad that you that you suggested that one. Um, that pretty much wraps it up. And I think that's probably a good place to, to close this conversation. Uh, Zach, thank you so much for, for doing this again. And, and uh, I had a really good time. Oh yeah, of course. Anytime. And, uh, definitely looking forward to talking about, uh, Batman 89. Yes. That's not something that could possibly happen. That is something that will happen. <laughs> Um, but I am very glad that we were able to close the year for the Sleeping Giant podcast, uh, not only with you, but also uh, in talking about one of my favorite movies of all time. So I was able to fulfill my promise of horror, mostly. <laughs> and uh, and I, think it, uh, I think this is going to end up being uh, a really good one. So uh, thanks again. And uh, I look forward to talking to you soon, man. Have a good night. Thanks. You too. 
That is our show, y'all. Thanks again to Mr. Rich Lansley and Zach Brown for contributing and being part of the Sleeping Giant podcast. Both of you are very fine people, and I'm very fond of you, as Gandalf the Grey might say. I'm incredibly grateful to y'all, though, seriously, for helping me close out 2020 with this episode. All right, y'all, here's the deal. Here's the deal. 2020 sucked. It sucked rotten gator anus. No two ways about that. It was a big shit sandwich. We all had to take a bite. But here's the thing. 2021 is probably, at least atmospherically, not going to be much better. And we, uh, though, we can be better. We simply have to be. If anything... This year has hopefully brought to the forefront how so many of us are alike and that we all have not only so many hardships in common, but also so many of the same hopes and desires and so many things that bring us joy. We share so much of that. So, you know, if there's got to be a resolution, let's make it to hold fast to that uh, that notion, that that nature, you know, that thing we all got uh, that, uh, that makes it so fun to be a fan. So once more, I've been your host, Grayson Parker Marcotte. Thank you for listening to the Sleeping Giant Podcast. Happy New Year, y'all. <laughs>